Uh, your labors, your brothers and sisters, this semester through the book of 1 Timothy uh, have been remarkable. We have tackled tough topic after tough topic after tough topic for multiple weeks where I felt like, whew, we survived that one. And then on Monday, I saw the next passage, and it was even harder. So thank you for being uh, people who humble yourselves before the Lord and receive his word with eagerness. You are a wonderful, mature, godly people. It's a joy to live the Christian life with you and to work through books like this with you. This morning, we enter the final uh, section of First Timothy. And in these last words, the Apostle Paul is going to return to the concern that began the letter. And so in this way, you could take 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 6, and you would find if you set them side by side that in many ways, chapter 6 is a mirror of chapter 1. It's just a more high quality mirror where you can see the same issues in greater detail and with sharper precision. That is, Paul began with false teachers and now in his last section, he'll end with them. This passage we're in this morning is a urgent warning and I hope that we'll receive it as such and heed its guidance. Look with me at the second half of verse two in chapter six. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It is as though the apostle, as he wrote that paragraph, had a thesaurus out and was trying to think of every powerful, provocative term in order to awaken us to the urgency of what he's saying. This paragraph is designed to teach us to beware of the false teacher's errors by godliness with contentment. Beware of godless, or beware of false teacher's errors by godliness with contentment. We'll take that in two parts, which is the way the, the paragraph works. First, we'll consider the errors of the false teachers. And second, let's think about the antidote to their false teaching, which is godliness with contentment. 
Verses 3 through 5 provide a sobering profile of a false teacher. If you could imagine um, you have witnessed a crime and you are called to give uh, a description of what the person who committed the crime looks like. An expert could take your, uh, well, he, he was, he was five, 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 5'11", maybe 6'1". He might have had brown hair. No, I think it was... I think it was blonde. He can take your nonsense and somehow come through with a proper portrayal of the person, expertly trained in discerning the words being spoken. This is Paul's portrait, his sketch of what a false teacher looks like. He has seen the crime, which is misrepresenting God by misrepresenting what God says and twisting the gospel. He's seen the effects of that crime on the harm of the church in Ephesus. And now he's giving a sketch of the false teachers. This sobering profile is important to analyze because this character sketch will both aim to protect each other from false teaching and also to warn us that we not become false teachers ourselves. This character sketch reveals three things about this false teacher. First, that there was a particular content or teaching. Second, that there was a certain kind of character in the false teacher. And finally, we'll see the corruption of the false teachers. So teaching, character, and corruption. First, teaching. When I say the word doctrine, I wonder what comes to your mind. And even more than what comes to your mind, I wonder how you feel about the word doctrine. Doctrine. Does that give you warm fuzzies or a bit of distaste in your mouth? Doctrine. Doctrine is not a popular word or concept today, even in some churches. Perhaps you've been told by a well-meaning parent or professor or friend, don't get too into that doctrine stuff because doctrine is dangerous and divisive. The only thing we need is love. You ever been told anything like that? Or perhaps said something like that? The great irony in that statement is that it purports a particular doctrine of love, while at the same time claims to be doctrine averse. Brothers and sisters, doctrine is just a fancy word for belief, and doctrine is everywhere. It's inescapable. Doctrine is a matter everyone engages it, whether they recognize it or not. So the question isn't, what do you think about when you think about doctrine, but rather, what do you believe about particular doctrines? I'm going to say that a different way. What beliefs 
do I espouse? And what beliefs does the person sharing with me seem to espouse? The distinctiveness of false doctrine or different doctrine is what? What is it that makes something false or different in the way this passage puts it? Well, the second half of verse three tells us that it does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And number two, and the teaching that accords with godliness. Friends, this may be one of the most important verses nobody here has taken the time to memorize or familiarize ourselves with. It's just one of the more overlooked paragraphs in the Bible. But I think there's a gold nugget here for us that we would do well to treasure. How do we discern if what we're being told is true or false? Paul gives us a very simple litmus test. Number one, does it agree with the sound words of Jesus Christ? Number two, does it promote, does it result in an increase in godliness? That's it. Biblical teaching is centered on Jesus and biblical teaching promotes godliness. Unbiblical teaching often mentions Jesus, but it will distort who he is, what he's done, what he's doing now, what he expects. And it evangelizes its hearers in something other than godliness. So this paragraph is giving us something here eminently practical. When you hear an ad, when you listen to a song, when you read a book, when you hear a sermon, when you have a conversation with somebody about spiritual things, and you're trying to decide, is what I'm hearing true? You only need two things to keep in front and center of your mind. Does it agree with the sound words of Jesus Christ? Does it promote godliness? Or to put that even more simply, is the gospel of Jesus front and center? And will godliness be the result? I was many years into my Christian walk. In fact, many years into pastoring before I felt any degree of competency at all in recognizing truth from error. Because you see, most false teaching isn't a mile off. It is just a little off. And its trajectory takes you far, far, far away, far more than a mile. So it's hard to spot. How do you spot it? I wish I'd understood this paragraph. Does it keep the gospel of Jesus Christ front and center? And does it have as its aim that I'd be growing up in godliness? I love the way Martin Luther put it, something he said 500 years ago or so. He said, I have found and noted in all histories of the whole Christian church, that's a big claim, that all those who have maintained the central doctrine of Jesus Christ in its integrity have remained safe and sound in the true Christian faith. 
Although they erred and sinned in other respects, yet they were finally saved. For anyone, if anyone stands firm and right on this point, that Jesus Christ is true God and true man, all the other articles of the Christian faith will fall in place for him and will firmly sustain him. I love that. It's just so simple. Does it get Jesus right? And does it promote godliness? Wise words. Now, let's consider the character of false teaching. Often we assume that YouTubers, authors, and professors who claim Christianity but teach false doctrine, often we assume people in that setting are simply confused. After all, we are aware that we ourselves don't get everything right. I am sure there are things I believe that are actually are not true. I just don't know which ones they are. We all will always be growing in our understanding and in our belief. So what makes the character of a false teacher alarming? Again, it's easy to think maybe I've just misunderstood. Maybe they've just misunderstood. Give them the benefit of the doubt, we might say. Paul does not look at false teachers that way. This paragraph makes that abundantly clear. I'm convinced that we ought to assume the very best in each other. That our ordinary, normal disposition toward each other ought to be, well, I'm going to assume the best, and even if I get the worst, there must be a reason, and we forgive and forbear. But Paul tells us when it comes to false teachers, that's not how we are oriented toward them. He knows false teachers are far from mistaken and innocent. Notice in verse 4, the way he piles up terms about them. He, this is the false teacher, is puffed up with conceit and understands most things. He says he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy. Unhealthy is the corollary to sound. There's sound teaching, meaning it's healthy, and there's unhealthy he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. Those who claim to teach Christianity claim themselves to be Christians, yet are dishonest about Jesus and the godliness he calls for. Paul tells us these people are not only arrogant and ignorant, but they are divisive. We are, as you know, just days away from Christmas. And as Christmas is coming, you may be having particular cravings. I've been craving some of those Christmas cookies, the, the, the sugar ones with all the frosting on top. Those are wonderful. 
aren't they? You're more than welcome to drop some by. <laughs> I crave those this time of year. False teachers have a different craving. Their craving is not to teach in such a way that Jesus is magnified and people aspire to greater and greater holiness. Their craving is for controversies, quarrels. Who wants that? Some of you grew up in homes that were marked by controversy and quarrel. And you had to learn each foot in this house might have a landmine on it. And I got to learn very carefully where to walk because you just never know when he's going to blow up again. Friends, what a hard way to grow up. And what a difficult thing to try to learn to trust people if that's the orientation those over you in terms of authority you had as a child. False teachers treat the church like that parent treats the home. They, they look for ways to constantly keep people walking on eggshells because they thrive on other people living with the results of their own hypocrisy. They enjoy it when people argue and get angry and are confused. It's gross, isn't it? What a tragic and bizarre thing to want. While claiming to encourage love, false teachers actually produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicion. And verse 5 says, constant friction. Again, some of you know exactly what it's like to live under the demand and pressure of constant friction. It's awful. Imagine the sanctuary the people of God are supposed to be being another place of constant dissension and friction. That's what false teachers produce. Rather than godliness, the exact opposite is the result. Because the only reason you and I, brothers and sisters, are not ourselves full of envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we believe the truth about God and have given our lives to him and therefore received from him. That's the only way. So of course people who mishandle Jesus and don't actually believe him are going to be people filled with all kinds of unhealth. Get the gospel wrong. Rancid character is guaranteed, irrespective of what sort of face it puts on itself. Beloved, I want to encourage you to beware people who espouse a fresh take 
on the Bible's core doctrines. Their words might be winsome, their assertions even persuasive, but given enough time, the content of their teaching and the hypocrisy of their character will eventually be shown as what, for what it is. I honestly can't emphasize this enough. It's Jesus, it's godliness. If that's not what's being preached, it's wrong and dangerous. It doesn't matter how slick the TikTok hot take is. You try saying that five times fast. <laughs> or how impressive the YouTuber is. Or how beautiful the cover of the book is. If the content is bad, then it's coming from one whose character is bad. We must be careful what we take in because it will shape us and be watchful over those we love. Now, verse five rounds out this portrait of the false teacher with a description of their corruption. Just how low will false teachers go? Verse five tells us. It says that when people are perverse of mind and devoid of biblical truth, they'll stoop all the way down to preaching wrong ideas about God and manipulating others, preaching things they know to be wrong in order to prey on the unsuspecting for personal spiritual gain. Except not spiritual. Financial. Imagine twisting spiritual things for material profit. Godliness then, when that happens, becomes a cover for greed. Beloved, not one of us is above susceptibility to the content, character, and corruption of false teachers. One particular way we can love each other as fellow church members is to exercise an affectionate, non-judgmental watchfulness over one another. What does that look like practically? Well, we notice when people stop showing up and we gently, lovingly pursue them. We go out of our way to do deliberate spiritual good in all kinds of forms for one another. We disciple each other with the scriptures open. We pray for one another using that membership directory we give out every meeting, which now has pictures of each person so we can actually learn and remember names. It's phenomenal. We keep our doctrinal statement that we've been reading in our gatherings close at hand. If you don't have a copy, there's some in the table here in the back. And we use that to remind ourselves of the central truths of the Bible. And when we notice a member's beginning to struggle in one of those areas, and maybe even starting to say things that are contradictory to it, then we don't expect somebody else to handle that. And then we go toward that person in love and reanalyze the Bible together. To refuse these kinds of acts of love is like seeing someone running as fast as they can towards the edge of a cliff and turning around and doing nothing. Let's be a church 
where we assume the best, yet embrace the responsibility to care for one another at our worst. Yes, this includes meals when we're sick and cookies at Christmas and showers when there's a wedding or a baby. But it also includes spiritual counsel when we're spiritually unwell. Be a Christian long enough, you will get spiritually sick from time to time. You will need help from brothers and sisters. Biblical teaching is centered on Jesus and it promotes godliness. And healthy churches help each other continue to stick with Jesus and to continue to pursue holiness. Now, how exactly do we go about that? Well, the, the second half of this paragraph aims to tell us, it aims to teach us about godliness with contentment. And so verses six to 10 give us just that. False teachers in Ephesus had degenerated to the point that they used an appearance of godliness while knowing they weren't actually godly in order to take things from the scriptures they knew not to be true and to assert them as true. All of that is captured in the final phrase of verse five, that they, imagine, they were imagining godliness is a means of gain. Imagine that. Imagining godliness is a means of gain. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I would expect the next verse, verse 6, to say something like, their error is that godliness is not about having a lot of money. Does that make sense to you? So, the end of verse 5, imagining that godliness is a means of financial gain, that's what it's getting at. I'd expect the next verse to say, but but godliness isn't having money. Now that would be a true thing to say, but it's not where the passage goes. Instead, the Apostle Paul is just on the edge of his seat as he writes this, wanting us to grasp it even with a witty pun. Paul takes the mention of a sinful desire for gain and he transforms it into a teachable moment. Start of verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. He said, they think this is gain. Oh, they are just so foolish. Let me tell you what real gain is. Real gain is godliness with contentment. Godliness is gain, but not the greedy gain of more and more and more money, but rather godliness with contentment. Church, the Bible abounds with warnings, with messages about money. And in particular, about the love of money. Money itself is amoral. It's neither good nor bad. It's how you use it. And we've got to be careful with it because it's dangerous to handle it. It's inescapable, you can't avoid it, but you need to handle it with care. The, the, the Bible tells us over and over and over about that. I picked one chapter 
to see um, where can I get one chapter that tells us multiple different things about money. Here's a few verses from the book of Ecclesiastes. All of these verses are from chapter 5. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. What an important verse. If you set your sights on loving money and what it can give you, then you will find that no matter how much or how little you have, you will never be satisfied. You will always be spiritually dehydrated because you'll never be drinking what's actually good for you and can quench your thirst. Money can't do that. A few verses later, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. What a graphic picture. Do you remember how you felt after Thanksgiving meal? It's like I have doubled my waist size in a single meal. That is the most miserable, awful, uncomfortable way to feel when you're absolutely gorged. Saying the way to contentment is not through having so much that you can gorge yourself, but rather be a person who works hard. Be content with the results. And then whether you eat a whole lot that day or not a whole lot, you'll have all you need and sleep well. One more. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. It's very likely based on a verse from Job and repeated many times throughout the Bible. It's even here in 1 Timothy 6. The basic principle is this. Loving money is foolish because you entered the world without any and you will exit the world without any. You will live for eternity from the moment you were conceived way past the end of time. You will go on forever. And a tiny little section of that will be the few decades you live here on earth. That will be the only stretch where there is the pursuit of wealth and money. That's a small amount of time. And it doesn't matter whether you were born to a very, very poor single mother or an incredibly rich couple. You entered the world naked and with nothing. And you will leave the world in exactly the same way. With that in mind, how silly is it to make love, the love of money, your ultimate aim? You see that here in chapter six? True godliness, brothers and sisters, is marked not by greed, but by contentment. Why? Because of what we've just said. One commentator I read this week said, birth and death provide the bookends from which to apprise material wealth. 
Godliness with contentment is great gain because birth and death are the great financial equalizers. You brought nothing in, you'll take nothing out. Now, exactly what did Paul mean by contentment? Well, that's fleshed out for us in verse 8. When we're keeping Christ as the center of our lives, then and only then will we have a proper view of what our actual needs are. How does the Bible define need? Much of what we spend money on are wants. But how does the Bible define need? To say that a different way, spiritual satisfaction in Jesus Christ will produce a material contentment in our basic needs being met. Spiritual satisfaction in Jesus Christ will produce in us a material commitment and contentment to our basic needs being met. You see, there's a deeper joy, church, in knowing you're at peace with God, in being ready to meet Jesus Christ, in resting in the peace that's yours in Christ. There's a deeper joy than available there than you can ever get by amassing great wealth. A godly contentedness is priceless. And that contentedness comes when we look and recognize our most basic needs are met. Do you see how they're defined down in verse 8? Verse 8 tells us the basic needs with which we ought to be content are when we have food and when we have clothing. Food and clothing. Now, the, the Greek word behind the word clothing so the word that was translated in this case as clothing literally means covering. And it was used to refer to both a covering, clothes for your body, and a covering for your head, meaning a house or some kind of something to be out of the elements. I think probably it's safe to assume both are in mind here. Food, meaning something to sustain your physical life. And the covering, meaning clothes on your skin and a roof over your head. Friends, Paul's telling us that food and covering are enough for a rich life with Christ and his people. That kind of life will overflow with abundance in what really matters. Those who love money are never going to reach the satisfaction they're looking for, while those who give themselves to godliness will also find contentment. These are especially important words for us as we head toward Christmas. What's on your to-do list this week? Probably for most of us, there is a list of people we still need to go buy gifts for. Praise God for the internet. <laughs> Friend, the greatest gift you have ever received was not unwrapped under a tree, but rather he walked out of a tomb. Eternal life comes through Jesus Christ and he is the best gift there is. Amen?
this week as you're buying gifts, would you also be thinking about who will I be around this Christmas that might not know Jesus? Give him a physical gift, yes, but also tell him or her about Jesus and pray that God will open minds and hearts that that gift might be unwrapped too. Understand that there is no conflict between being rich and being godly. This chapter is not teaching sort of a financial asceticism. It's it's fascinating that these false teachers held to a form of asceticism, meaning they, they said, for example, you can't eat certain foods because those foods are inherently bad. If you want to be godly, you won't eat that. So that's asceticism there. And yet when it came to money, they were anything but ascetics. They wanted as much as they could possibly get, even willing to pray on the people of God for it. It is possible to have a lot on this earth and to also have a lot in heaven. The two are not in conflict with each other. Some of the most godly, effective people in the Old Testament were exceedingly wealthy. Verse 9 gets down to the heart of the issue. The issue isn't how much you have. Verse 9 talks about compulsive desires for riches. That compulsive desire, that idolatry, will lead to all sorts of trouble because the love of money is a root of all forms of evil. Notice the word love. When we exchange a love for God for a love for wealth, that then becomes the problem. We need a sober reminder that a craving for wealth can lead to a caving into apostasy. It did for those teachers. And unfortunately, it could for us too. What's the way out? Believe Jesus Christ and make godliness your aim. When you do, brothers and sisters, you will be protected from the folly of false teachers. Over the next week or two, you are likely to enjoy some time off school or work. You'll eat some tasty food. You might see some friends and family and even catch up on a good book, a movie, and some sleep. And then in the blink of an eye, 2024 will be here. What if next year was for you consumed by the pursuit of gain? What if looking for gain, seeking gain was the driving motivation in your life? That could be wonderful or it could be horrible. It depends on what the object of the gain is. But what if godliness was the thing you were most longing for? What if the gain 
of godliness with contentment was your chief end. I want to encourage you to ask yourself this morning, if Jesus walked in my shoes, living my life in 2024, what would godliness look like? What would Christ do walking around, living the daily life you normally live? What would Jesus say? What would he pray about? Where would his time get invested? What would his resources get leveraged for? Who would he be in particular and significant relationship with? Where would scripture reading and church and work and family and serving and sleep and people and projects fall? You know, Jesus had all of those things. He didn't just wander around for 33 years with a big scroll. If Jesus walked in your shoes, lived your life, what would he do? What would his priority of godliness with contentment look like? Not as first century Judaism, but today in your life. Well, friends, the mind-blowing bit about this is none of those questions are hypothetical. Because you see, Jesus is walking around in your shoes, brother or sister. One of the glories that happened when you were converted is that Christ took up residence within you. And so literally, everywhere you go, Jesus goes too. Jesus is walking with you, walking in your shoes. He's there, of course, spiritually. So what? Jesus will walk in your shoes next year because Christ is in you and you are in him. Godliness isn't neglecting normal life. It's living normal life with the awareness that Jesus is in fact in me. And therefore, the godliness that Jesus would display, I can in fact also display. As I turn from reliance on myself and to trust and rest and depend on him, then little by little by little, you will begin to look like Jesus. Even your instincts over time can change. Isn't that amazing? When we're locked into the awareness that Christ is in us and we are in him, godliness with contentment will be great gain. Let's pray. Before I voice a prayer for us, I wonder if you'd take a moment to prayerfully do a little assessment.
Father, we're asking you that this uh, word of warning given to us in this paragraph in our Bibles would have its proper effect, that it would sober us and that we would double down on our commitment to Christ and to godliness. And yet we're also asking that the only note that's been struck here would not just be a somber, serious one, but that we'd read this paragraph as Christians and therefore as people full of hope. We are full of hope as we look to 2024, that we can in fact live with Christ at the center and in a ever-increasing godliness with contentment, not because we try hard and discipline ourselves in our own efforts and labors to please you. But only as we recognize that part of the miracle of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are inhabited by our Savior through the Spirit who lives within. God, would you recalibrate us over the next few days and weeks that our chief end in 2024, amid all the things that we would do, is to grow in godliness and to know Jesus more. We pray this in his name. Amen.